Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are uh, the God of purpose and plans and the one who has meaning. It is not vanity. It's not meaningless. But Lord, we pray today as we look at your word that you would reveal to us uh, the ways in which you work and the purpose for which you've called us to work, that we might find deep joy, joy deep, deep down, joy that comes from the hope of the gospel. May you help us to love you in that today as we listen, as we sit under your word. May you transform our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When I was growing up, uh, one of my favorite things, one of the highlights of my week was Saturday morning cartoons. Anybody else? You, you, you look forward to the Saturday morning cartoons. I mean, I would get up early on Saturday. I'd be so excited. I'd get up before anyone else in the house, and I would uh, you know, grab a bowl of cereal and lay down in front of the TV and just watch as many cartoons as I possibly could. Because I was looking forward to it all week, just this time by myself, watching TV, watching cartoons. And some of my favorite back in the day were Looney Tunes. In particular, I loved Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. You ever watch that? Anybody who's never seen that before, maybe you're a little younger, uh, it's, it's real simple. Basically, there's a, a hungry, desperate coyote who is trying to catch the, the speedy roadrunner. Like, he's tried everything. He's trying every contraption, every weapon, every strategy, everything he can possibly do. But all throughout the series of episodes, if you've seen it before, you know he never catches him. He's always trying to catch him, always trying to catch him. And, and I always wondered as a kid, does he actually ever catch him? I didn't watch every episode. You know, I tried as hard as I could, but I didn't see all of them. But I found out recently, he does. The answer is yes. There, there is one official episode. Apparently there's other episodes out there that people created just to make it happen. But there is one official episode where the coyote actually catches the roadrunner. And this is how it goes. Basically, you know, like a normal episode, they're, they're chasing all throughout the place, and, and he's trying everything he can to catch the Roadrunner, and then they run through these series of pipes, and, and somehow these pipes magically shrink the coyote. And so when they come out of the pipes, the, the coyote is really tiny, and the Roadrunner is real big, and the Roadrunner looks back, and he sees that the coyote is real tiny, and so he stops, and he lets him catch up, and he lets him catch him. And this is the thing. So the coyote, he realizes he's caught him. He wraps his arms around him and he smiles back at the camera. And there's this triumphant music that plays. And everybody's, you know, just kind of wondering how did this actually happen? He gets out his, his fork and knife and he's ready to eat the roadrunner. And then he looks up and he realizes he's 10 times his size. He can't eat him. The roadrunner is too big to eat. And so the roadrunner looks down at him like he's this little tiny coyote. He looks down at him and he just smiles and then he gives out this loud, epic beep, beep, right? And then he runs away and the coyote holds up this sign and he says, what am I supposed to do now? Right? He, he had been spending his whole life trying to catch the roadrunner. He'd done all that work. He had done everything he could possibly do to try to get the roadrunner. That was his life's goal and then he finally catches him, and he can't even eat him. And he's wondering, what, what am I supposed to do with that? I did all that work for what? For what? 
Have you ever wondered that about your work? Right? Have you ever wondered that about some kind of job, some, some kind of work you've done in your life where you look back over it and you, you're trying to figure out, why did I do all of that work? I had spent so much time trying to get to that goal, spent so much time trying to achieve whatever it was, and I finally get to where I thought I should be, and now I wonder, why did I do all of that? I mean, it could be big things, it could be small things, I mean, things like the dishes, right? You do the dishes, and you, you take care of that mountain of dishes, and then 24 hours later, there's another mountain of dishes. How does that happen? You know, or, or maybe you drive to your job and, and uh, you know, you're driving to your job and you get there, you work eight to ten hours or however long your shift is, and then you go home and you, you eat some dinner and you go to sleep and you get up and you do it again. You drive to work and you work another eight to ten hours and you go home and you eat dinner and you do it again. And you're wondering, why do I do all this work? Why do I do all this work? Or maybe you own your own business and you're trying to get something off the ground and you're trying to start this work and, and you've, you've worked so hard to get it to where it is and then it hits you one day that one day you're going to have to either hand that off to somebody or the business dies. And you realize, what, what am I doing this work for? I'm going to work so hard and I don't know what that person's going to do with it. This is the question we're wrestling with today. What, what is the purpose behind the work? We're going to look back on our work one day and we're going to ask, why did I do that? That's what we're talking about today. So we're continuing our series today called Faith Goes to Work. And we've been uh, considering in this series basically the intersection between our faith and our work. You know, our, our faith on Sundays, what we talk about at church and how we live our life for Jesus, how does that fit into the rest of our life, Monday through Saturday, or whenever you do your work, how does that fit together? How, how do those two things integrate? That's what we've been looking at. And so last week, we looked about the topic of greatness, and we looked at how Jesus defines greatness different than the world. And Jesus defines greatness not as lording it over somebody, but serving under them, right? Serving under them for the sake of the kingdom. Well, this week, now we're looking at this topic of meaning and purpose. And so what does it look like for the gospel to inform our sense of purpose? What is the why in our work? And so uh, that's the question I want to ask today. How do we find purpose in our work? Let's look first at the vapor of work, the vapor of work. If you're taking notes this morning, this is the first point, the vapor of work. Look at me back at verse 18. It begins like this. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, we've got to pause for a second, is what we call wisdom literature in the Old Testament. So this particular book in that genre of wisdom literature is kind of like sitting in a classroom with a professor who's asking provocative questions, right? He's asking questions to try to draw out some thinking from you, trying to get you to grasp with these topics that maybe you wouldn't normally think about. And so he's asking questions, he's wrestling with these topics, and traditionally the book is... is uh, is uh, seen as Solomon as the author, right? Solomon as the author. 
Solomon was one of the kings in the Old Testament, and, and he may have been the author. We're actually not sure because the author is never identified with a name. And so it could have been him. It could have been somebody who was kind of taking on his persona. We don't know, but what we know is this. He identifies himself with a title. He calls himself Koalet. And Koalet was, was this Hebrew word that could mean teacher or preacher or professor. It was someone who speaks to a gathering of people about a topic. And so we, we have this teacher here who's gathered together his students, and he wants to deal with some hard questions. And so he talks about the meaning of life. He, he starts to wrestle himself with what is the meaning of life. And so he starts out by searching. And he goes searching, and he starts to look, and he looks for knowledge. And he says, well, maybe I can find meaning for my life in knowledge. You know, maybe I could be smarter than everybody else. I can be wiser than everybody else, and I can have real meaning in my life. And after he goes on that search for a little while, he realizes, well, that's vanity. That, that's meaningless. That doesn't fulfill me the way I thought it would. And so then he moves on to pleasure. And he thinks, well, maybe if I can fill my life with sex and money and prestige and pleasure and all these different things and just fulfill all my desires, I'll have meaning. And he finds out after he searches that for a little while, it's meaningless. It's vanity. So now he turns to a third thing. He turns to his work. He turns to his job. And he thinks, maybe, maybe I can find real meaning in the workplace, in my accomplishments, in my success. And as he reflects on his work now in chapter 2, he realizes it won't last. It won't last. He starts to realize, if I am so successful and I, I accomplish everything that I want to accomplish, at some point, I'm going to have to turn that over to somebody. I'm going to have to turn it over to somebody, and I don't know if that person's going to be wise or they're going to be a fool. You know, I, I can bring about this massive amount of money or wealth or whatever it is, but I'm going to have to turn it over to somebody, and I have no control over what they do with that. They could either squander it or they can do well with it. He's, and then he throws up his hands and he says, well, that's just vanity. I don't, I don't have any purpose in that, right? He throws up his hands and he says, vanity, vanity. The Hebrew for the word vanity is hebel. It means a vapor or a mist. It's this idea that, that it's just going to fade away. It doesn't really last very long. It's just for a moment. It's, it's just temporary. Yeah. Now, what brings him to this bold conclusion it's the fact, it's the reality of his own death. It's the reality of his own death. Listen to me carefully. Death makes all toil temporary. It makes all toil temporary. In 1954, there was a uh, study done by the University of Illinois. A, it was an a, uh, aviation study. And they basically got together these 20 different... Uh, amateur pilots, and they, they put them together in this study, and, and they each had to fly a simulation plane in a flight simulator. And they said, when you fly the plane, you're not going to be able to use any of the instruments. In other words, you're not going to see any maps or gauges or anything else. Like You can't use any of the instruments, but you're going to fly directly into a storm. So you're going to go into this storm with dark clouds and stormy weather, and we want to see how you are able to manage the storm without any of your uh, instruments. And so they agree to this, because obviously if you crash, it's, you're not going to lose your life. It's a flight simulator. But they want to see how they react. And so all 20 of them, get this, all 20 of them, 
crashed the plane within an average of 178 seconds. 178 seconds. That, that was the name of the study later. They named it 178 seconds to live. Get this. 20 people who were capable, intelligent, wise pilots, when they got into the storm, they started to lose their sense of orientation. They didn't know where they were or where they were going. They didn't know up from down. They couldn't see anything. And so within just a few seconds, within less than three minutes, they crashed and destroyed the plane and destroyed themselves. Why? Because they lost their sense of orientation. They lost a sense of where am I going? Now listen to me. Ecclesiastes, the whole book really, not just this text, the whole book is trying to orient us towards reality. Towards reality. Listen to me carefully. You are going to die. I am going to die. Every one of us, 10 out of 10 of us in this room, are going to die at some point. Right? It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be within the next decade. I don't know when you're going to die, I don't know when I'm going to die, but at some point in your story, you are going to die. That's what he's trying to orient us towards. He's trying to help us realize this life that is, is uh, you know, what we enjoy today is fleeting, it's temporary, it's brief. And, and if that sounds dark or pessimistic, I want you to listen to me. It's probably because you haven't spent a lot of time reflecting on that reality. You haven't spent a lot of time reflecting on that. And you're not alone in that. In our modern society, we don't really talk about death very much. We're probably the most disconnected from death than any other society in history. I mean, we, we don't really talk about it. We don't really deal with it. We, we try to make sure that we don't see it very often. The only time we see death is when it's on the movies, and then it's not real. It's fake. And so we're very unfamiliar with this process and this reality. And so many of us live our lives as if we're in this fantasy land that we're never going to die. We're just going to keep going. We're just going to keep living. We're just going to keep doing what we do. It's just going to keep on. As if talking about it, it might make it happen. And so we live in this fantasy. Let me ask you, when was the last time you really reflected on your own death? Really reflected on your own death. In the 6th century, uh, there was a guy by the name of St. Benedict. And St. Benedict, he... Uh, created this rule called Benedict's Rule, and he created it for the monks who were living in the monastery that he was at. And in St. Benedict's Rule, he says uh, he wants the monks to reflect on their death daily. That was one of the things, one of their spiritual practices. They had to reflect on their death daily. And, and get this, some of the monks decided the way they were going to do that was they were going to put a skull on their desk, you know, their, their little room, they're going to put a skull on their desk in their room. And this wasn't like a skull they ordered on Amazon, right? This, this was a skull that was probably like Brother George who came before them, right? And, and he died, you know, a few years before, and they decided to keep his skull and put it on the desk. Like this was a real human skull. Now that's a little maybe strange for our modern ears and a little odd, but Here's what they did. It was actually a spiritual discipline that they call memento mori. It means remember your death. Memento mori. They wanted to, every day they sat down at their desk, they wanted to remember that one day they'd be like Brother George. One day they would die. 
And they wanted to keep that in front of them so they would realize every day they lived was a gift to them, but also that every day they lived was one day closer to that day. When was the last time you reflected on your death? Have you spent any time thinking about that? I mean, this is the gift of our death. This is what Ecclesiastes is getting us to wrestle with. This is the gift of our death to say, I know that one day I'm going to die. And so if I ignore that, I'm living in a fantasy land. But if I can come to realize that and admit that is true, now I can live differently. Now it reorients me because I'm no longer flying blind through the storm. I know where I'm headed. One day I am going to cease. And that means my work is going to end. That means I, I am going to not be able to continue to do what I'm doing today. And so how does that affect the way I live now? Have you reflected on your death? Now, there's two responses when you do. And this is what Ecclesiastes shows us. There, there's two responses when you actually deal with the reality of your death. The first one is despair. And this is the second point I want to look at, the despair of work. So look at verse 20 with me. He goes, the teacher goes on to say this. He says, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Now the teacher's first response is, I give myself over to despair. Right? Because he realizes, like I said, he's going to die. His work is not going to continue. And in fact, he's going to turn it over to someone else who may or may not be wise. And if they benefit off of it, get this, he says in verse 21, it's even worse. Because now they benefit off of all my work and they didn't do anything for it. Before that, he says it's vanity. Now he says it's vanity and it's a great evil. You know, he says, this is just unfair. I work my whole life and I can't benefit from it anymore. And now they get all the stuff that I worked for. He says it's unfair, it's unjust, this is a great evil. And then he spirals even further in his despair in verse 23. Look at what he says, talking about himself. He says, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. I mean, can you hear the pain in his voice? He's wrestling with this reality that if I continue to give myself to this work, what good does that do for me? Every day I go to work, it's sorrow after sorrow, it's frustration after frustration, and then I go home thinking I'm going to get some rest, and I can't even sleep at night. I'm exhausted, and all I can think about is work. This is what he's saying. He realizes that his work, this is, what, this is the, the point of his whole despair. He's despairing because he realizes his work can't deliver on his hopes. It can't deliver on his hopes. Listen, despair exposes your hope for your work. It exposes where your hope is in your work. Uh, in 1996, there was a Japanese woman by the name of Yasuka Namba who became, listen to this, the oldest person ever to climb to the, to the summit of Mount Everest at 46 years old. 46 years old, she climbed all the way to the top. She was already an, an accomplished uh, climber. She had climbed to the other seven highest peaks in the world. And so this was kind of her grand moment, the, the highest achievement that she would have. And she was a very you know, experienced climber. And yet, 
her, her other fellow climbers, they said this about her. They said that she was totally focused on the top. She pushed extremely hard, passing everyone to the front of the line. In other words, she used all of her energy. She exhausted herself thinking, I got to get to the top. I got to get to the top. Whatever it takes, I got to get to the top. And so she did, right? She, she met her goal. She became the oldest person to ever do it. But then a blizzard set in. And that afternoon, there was so much snow and ice and, and wind. It was coming in hard that they couldn't see where they were going and what was going on. And their whole group all of a sudden panicked. And they started to come down the mountain. But listen, she was exhausted from earlier in that day by giving everything she had to get to the top. So exhausted, she fell down, collapsed in exhaustion, and tragically froze to death. She froze to death near the place that she broke the record. Later that day, uh, as, as the people were uh, reporting in on what had happened, the survivors who miraculously made it back, they testified this. They said her fatal mistake was adopting the wrong goal. They said her goal was getting to the top, but every climber knows that's never the goal. The goal is to get back to the bottom. Back to the bottom. The despair of our hearts, it exposes the real goal of our work. Let me ask you this. What, what is the goal of your work? Why, why do you bother getting up in the morning and going to, to your job? Why do you bother changing those diapers? Why, why do you bother cleaning that house? Why, why do you bother dealing with the frustrations at your job? Why, why do you bother doing all the things that you do? Some of us, many of us, the goal of our work is that we might get to the top, that we might be successful, that we might be known as influential or comfortable or, or, or whatever. We might have influence. We might have all these different things. We, we are hoping that we could get to the top. And so we put our hope in this place that one day we'll achieve this, whatever that this is. And then once we get there, we will have the identity we desire. We'll have this sense of identity because really for us, our work is more than what we do. It's who we are. It's who we are. We're, we're defined by our success and failure. And so then when our work is going well, we're good. But when our work is going bad, we're bad. Right? We have purpose that's based on our position. We have worth that's based on our wealth. And yet at some point, at some point, if that's how you're treating it, you're going to realize that your work can't deliver on the promise. We can't build a lasting, meaningful identity on our work. Why? Because the moment you fail, it all falls apart. It all falls apart. Right? The moment that you get let go, the moment that you didn't get the promotion, the moment that you, you know, didn't achieve whatever the goal was that you had, the moment that somebody criticizes your work, the moment that it doesn't work the way you had hoped it would because you had put everything you had into it, it falls apart. And now you're left with the, the crumbling identity that you created in that work because you said, you know what, I'm going to pour myself into this and this is going to be who I am. This is going to be what I do. And then it disappears. And despair begins to settle in. Because you had your hope in the wrong place. In the wrong place. The goal has never been to get to the top. It's never been to be a human doing, but to be a human being. Right? It's never been that. 
And so what are the signs that maybe that's be, it's become that for you? What, what are the signs? Well, the, the teacher here in Ecclesiastes, he says the primary sign is this. You have a restless heart. You have a restless heart. He's saying, I, I can't rest at night. I, I can't get my work off my mind. I can't get the frustration out of my mind. I can't stop thinking about it. I, I go to sleep and I, it's on my mind. I wake up, it's on my mind. I can't rest. I can't stop worrying. I'm anxious. I'm trying to squeeze all this worth out of my work. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe you are asking questions like, am I really working hard enough? Am I really doing enough? Am I really achieving enough? Am I enough? If you have that sign, what he's saying is that it's going to fail eventually. It's going to fail. It's going to crumble. It's going to, you're going to find out it's meaningless. But what is the proper response? What, what is the other option? This is where he goes next. Uh, there, there's a second response that contrasts with this despair, and it's joy. So this is the third point, the joy of work. Look at verse 24. He shifts gears here, and uh, look at what he says in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, this is the first of what you might call the carpe diem or, or seize the day kind of statements in Ecclesiastes. And at first, it seems like it might be uh, just like the previous section. It seems like he's despairing. It seems like he's pessimistic. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, you know, eat, drink, and, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He's not saying that. You'll find that later when Paul in the, in the New Testament talks about a similar idea, but these are actually opposite ways of approaching the problem. He's actually saying the complete opposite. He's not saying a despairing, pessimistic response. He's actually giving an alternative vision, a very different response to the reality of death. He's giving this vision of shalom. He's giving this vision of, of everything thriving and flourishing, and he describes it the way you'd see it in Eden. Right? He describes it as everyone is eating and drinking and actually enjoying their work. They're rejoicing rather than despairing. Now, how does this joy happen? Here's the key. God enters the conversation. If you read the book up until now, uh, the teacher hasn't even mentioned God except once. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, he kind of, in a passing comment, mentions God. But everything else has been his own reflections on life and his own desire for meaning and purpose and, and fulfillment. And God hasn't been in the conversation at all. But now, finally, God enters into the conversation. And instead of him reflecting on his own striving, his own working, he reflects on God's giving. He says, notice what he says. He says, this enjoyment of our work is from the hand of God. It's given as a gift. Do you hear the difference? He's saying the person who despairs over their work is because they are giving themselves over striving to achieve and to, to accomplish and to gain. And he says, there's a completely other way of seeing your work. You can see it from the hand of God as a gift. And when it's from the hand of God as a gift, there's joy. It's a completely different way. He's saying this. He's saying joy is received from God, not achieved from us. That's the key difference. On April 12, 2012, uh, the White Sox pitcher, uh, Philip Humber, he pitched a perfect game. 
If you don't know baseball, that means he retired 27 batters in a row. No walks, no hits, nobody got on base. 27 batters in a row. It, it's, a, it's a high achievement. It's something that only a handful of people, I think a few dozen people, have done in the history of the baseball game. But then, what's even more surprising is that same year, later in the year, the team cut him from the roster. Sports Illustrated at the time did a, an article on him uh, and, and this whole process, and this is what they said. They said, for one magical April afternoon, Philip Humber was flawless, but that came with a heavy burden, the pressure to live up to a standard that no one can meet. And he later, as he's reflecting on it, he said this. He said, after that game, I felt I had to prove that the perfect game wasn't a fluke. I had to prove that I deserved to be on that list. You catch that? And so what happened is it shifted his whole career to where now everything was about being perfect. Everything was about achieving more than he really could achieve in any sensible imagination, right? You can't pitch perfect games all the time. And so he's working incredibly hard. He's, he's up early. He's working out. He's in the video room. He's in the weight room. He's trying to do everything he possibly can. And it's only making him worse until he finally got cut from the team. And they said this at the end of the article. They said, Philip doesn't know what will come next, but he knows this. He's done chasing perfection. He's done chasing perfection. Because he found out that joy can't be achieved. It can only be received. It can only be received. This is what the gospel is all about. The gospel is all about receiving, not achieving. It's all about a gift, not gaining. That's what Ecclesiastes is, is hinting at right here. He's starting to realize that if I'm going to find meaning, if I'm going to find purpose, if I'm going to find joy in this work, it's not going to be because I achieve it all and I can look at it and say I'm proud. It's going to be because I am with God. Right? This is what he finds out, and it's what later becomes obvious in Christ. Jesus says this uh, to us in John chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much, much fruit. Listen, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is quoting Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes says, apart from God, who can have enjoyment? Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do it. In other words, apart from me, you can't have joy. Apart from me, you can't have this fulfillment. Apart from me, you can't have the purpose you desire. Apart from me, you can't have any of it. But in me, in me, you can have all of it. Because it's a gift from the hand of God himself. It's not found in our work, but in his work. We receive the gift of God's work on our behalf in Christ. It's his work to send Jesus from heaven to earth. He did the work to love his father perfectly. He did the work to love people perfectly. He loved the poor and the rich. He loved the Jew and the Gentile. He loved the healthy and the sick. He loved the friend and the enemy. He loved his enemies just like us by taking upon himself our sin on the cross. It was the cross for which he came. The cross was his greatest work, his purpose, his mission, that he might complete our redemption. Right As he hung on the cross, he bore our sin and our shame. He completes his work and he cries out, it is finished. It's finished. It's accomplished. It's done. His joy is our salvation. Our salvation 
is his joy. So we receive this joy that comes from him. It's received, it's not achieved. It's a gift, it's not gained. And in that, we have a new identity. We have a new identity that's secure. We have nothing else to achieve, nothing else to gain that, that builds a better identity than that. Because in Christ, we are more than conquerors. In Christ, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. In Christ, we are fully redeemed, fully forgiven, fully brought into the family. You hear that? And so because of that, you're secure. You have it all. You have it all. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But in me, you'll bear fruit. You'll bear fruit because now your work is a gift. Now your work is the joy of serving the Lord who's given you everything. Do you need to receive the work of Christ and all its hope as you do your work? See, without him, there is no hope, but in him, there is full hope. And Jesus says the way you receive that hope, the way you receive that gift is through what he calls repentance and faith. Repentance means I'm turning away from trusting my work as my identity. I'm turning away from putting myself into my work, thinking my work will save me, thinking my work will give me hope. It will give me an identity. And I'm turning towards Jesus and I'm trusting in him, trusting in his work, not my work. I'm trusting in the work that he finished on the cross that defines my identity. So now in him, I am everything that I desire to be. That's what it means to put your faith in Jesus. I'm turning away and I'm turning towards. And when you do that, he says, in me, you have it all. You can have it all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift. The gift of your life in our place. The gift of your death in our place. The gift that your work has been accomplished. It's been completed. There's nothing else for you to do to attain our full redemption. It's finished. And now, Lord, as your finished work is being applied to us, Lord, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would transform our hearts and minds. Help us by the Spirit's power to, to really trust what you've done for us already. Help us by the Spirit's power to trust that you are the God who's given, and from the hand of God, we have all the joy we can imagine. Help us to repent of making our work our identity, where we find our purpose and our meaning, and let us find our true hope, our true self in you so that our work can be what it ought to be, just a gift, a gift from you and a gift from us to others, that our work, we can be freed up to love without attachment. We pray that you would do it for Christ's name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.